Welcome to Hunting Land. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by Alabama Ag Credit. Buying rural property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources, and while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. Well, I'm Joe Bayer. I'm here with my buddy Clint Flowers again today. And Clint, you know, speaking of Alabama Ag Credit and uh, really just rural real estate financing, man, interest rates are still crazy low. And, you know, for I heard about a, a really cool program this week that probably a lot of folks don't even realize exists for for people that are interested in buying land, whether it's timberland, farmland, it doesn't matter as long as it's, you know, qualifies under the USDA. There are programs out there that loan up to 95% of the value of that land. And right now with land rates being around four and three quarters percent, uh, somewhere around four and three quarter to 5%. That means that when you put together with the patronage rate that the farm credit system loans have, it being anywhere from one to 1.2%, you're looking at 20 year fixed rates right now, anywhere from 3.6 to 3.8% effectively on a 95% LTV. That's creating quite a buzz for me, at least in, in the land market. Uh, my phone's been ringing off the hook. How you been doing? been the same i mean and i have i've got a closing coming up where uh the buyer's doing a more traditional down payment structure of you know 20 percent uh with them and he's getting 3.4 percent fixed before patronage for 20 years and i mean that's on on really good grounds i mean the timbers the timber growth rate exceeds his interest rate by probably two percent i mean that's just crazy it's a historic time with regards to interest rates and what kind of opportunities that affords people. And I'm, I'm, man, I mean, I'm debt averse. I'm not a, I'm not a big debt guy, you know, uh, but it's all about strategic debt. Yeah. I mean, if I've always said smart leverage is, is leverage that puts money in your pocket and there's never been a better opportunity for that than right now that not, at least not in, in my time of looking at it. Have you ever seen interest rates or an environment like this? No, never. Well, you know, folks, one of the reasons that you should want to buy land is because of the timber. Uh, that can be a component um, of land, especially here in the Southeast. And it's something you need to keep track of if you own timber land. Uh, so before we get into this week's show, we're going to be talking about estate planning a little later in the show. Before we get there, we're going to go and talk to Jonathan Smith of Timbermark South and get a current timber market update. All right. I'm, I'm excited about this new segment, Clint. This is something we get questions about all the time and, and people want to know what's the current timber market doing. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I get the question of how much wood's on that property? You know, how much is all that worth? And the answer is always, uh, it depends. But uh, this week, we're going to be going into the current timber market prices update and we're talking with Jonathan Smith. Jonathan is the executive director of Timber Mart South. Jonathan, tell us a little bit more about Timber Mart South. Well, good afternoon, Joe and 
Uh, Clint, thanks for the opportunity to be here. I'm with Timbermark South. We've been uh, in business since 1976. Uh, we've been producing timber market information. We don't set any of the prices, but we record, we capture information from uh, our reporters in the marketplace. Uh, we cover 11 states from Virginia to eastern Texas, and we also have a comprehensive newsletter where we cover uh, mill openings and closings and timberland transaction information. And so uh, if you have any need for any of that information, feel free to get in touch with us. We'd love to start providing you some information. Thank you guys for having me on today. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We're always excited to uh, to learn more about the timber market. It's something that's important to a lot of the landowners we work with. And you guys, and just to, just to be clear, you guys report on the previous quarter. Are you a quarterly publication? Is that right? That's correct. We are a quarterly publication. We usually follow uh, the previous quarter by about a week, week and a half uh, lag time. So we, we capture our information throughout the quarter. And then after the quarter ends, that's when we get our data together and uh, put together our summaries. And so just like we talk about on here a lot, Clint, you know, market averages are just that. Things can be different in a local market, depending on what that mill is doing and what the supply and the demand is around that mill. But these are, you guys provide a market average for each state and then also Southwide. Is that right? That's great. Actually, we, we produce a, uh, or we, we calculate a low average and a high average for two regions within each state. Okay. And then those states are aggregated together to get to a Southwide average. So when I, uh, when I reference region one or region two, those are different regions within each of the states. And then those are those come together to form a state average, and then those states are averaged together to get our southwide average. Well, Jonathan, uh, Clint and I being Alabama boys, we're going to be selfish, and we're going to start this segment out with uh, with Alabama. We want to know what's going on in our in our home state. So let's talk a little bit about the current prices in Alabama. What are the five main classifications that y'all keep track on? We cover pine saw timber, pine chip and saw, and pine pulp wood are our three pine products that we cover. Uh, our primary products that we cover. We have the, uh, some of the other secondary products, but then we also, on the hardwood side, we have our mixed hardwood saw timber and our hardwood pulpwood. You know, you cover the prices, but you also, like you talked about earlier, you're talking about some of the trends and, and why these things are doing what they're doing. So in Alabama, we talk about pulpwood first. What's the current pulpwood price? Uh, current pine pulpwood price is, um, or Alabama's average was 783 compared to for the Alabama state average compared to 873 for the southwide average. So not a big difference as it compares to the south. How does that trend from the previous quarter? Was did you see a, an increase or a decrease? And was that a was that the low average or the high average? That was the state average. Uh, the state average that was actually down about 60 cent uh, from the previous year. So but up from the previous quarter. Q1, and we're talking, you know, we should probably qualify. We're talking Q1 2020 right now with these prices. So we we saw uh, an increase from Q1 2019, but a decrease from Q4 2019. Or is it the other way around? Other way around. So for so for Q1 2020, we saw it was 783 for Pine Wood. Uh, fourth quarter 2019, uh, we were up about 70 cents. Uh, and then if you compare to first quarter 2019, we were down about 65 cents. What about chip and saw? Chip and saw 
was 16.73 this past quarter uh, at the state average. Uh, and again, that was up about a dollar and a half from the previous quarter uh, and down about a quarter from the previous year. And of course, we got to go salt timber. What, what was salt timber doing? Uh, pine salt timber was at uh, 2389 uh, for first quarter 2020. And uh, that's up uh, from fourth quarter 19. And again, down about 75 cents from same time previous year. So we're seeing a, an uptick uh, from the fourth quarter, but a but a downtick from the previous uh, from the same quarter in in 2019, almost across the board. Is there any is there any trend to that with pine? Not really. Um, that's you, that's just your normal ebb and flow to see it going up and down. Normally, uh, your fourth and your first quarters are your stronger timber markets for selling uh, timber. Uh, we we generally have seen a uh, an uptick in prices in the fourth quarter and the first quarter. So this is a comparison, but you're still looking at a low percentage when you when you put that put those numbers against one another. You're only up and down a small percentage, right? Um, year over year, and it's mostly it sounds like it's mostly just a cyclical yearly increase, not necessarily a a trend upward. That's correct. Uh, when you when if you we're we're plotting those every quarter, and when you look at that, it's basically a flat line with some minimal up and down each quarter. Jonathan, when it comes to toilet paper, is it is most of that made from pine or hardwood? Most of that is made from pine on your fluff pulp, and then so your with, with the current situation, most of your uh, toilet paper is going to be coming from those pine trees. Well, there you go. Hopefully, that'll decrease some inventory of pine for us. I know there's certainly been plenty of it being bought. Well, what about hardwoods? How's hardwood pulpwood doing? Hardwood pulpwood uh, in Alabama was $14.18 for $14.18 for uh, first quarter of 2020. Uh, That is up about, I mean, uh, down about 80 cents from fourth quarter and down about $3 a ton from the same time first quarter 19 is the saw timber doing any better uh hardwood saw timber hardwood saw timber is both going down there's been a, a pretty substantial correction there as well first quarter 20 we were at 33 dollars, and compared to fourth quarter where we were at 41 so we're down about eight eight and a half dollars there uh previous year uh, we're down about four and a half dollars a ton Looking back, what's what was the reason uh, for that correction, do we think? I mean, why do you think it got up? Uh, there was some wet weather uh, impacts in there uh, and some correction. Uh, mixed hardwood salt timber is an industrial-grade uh, product. That's where a lot of your pallets and your uh, railroad ties and a lot of that stuff is made from. Uh, so you those markets are, are somewhat cyclical as well. Uh, hardwood is also one of those products where when you have uh, wet weather, you can you can have a lot of impact on price. Jonathan, in addition to monitoring these timber prices, it's also important to know what kind of market indicators, anything's newsworthy within your local area. So in Alabama, is there anything in, in Q1 2020, any new mills coming online, any new capacity coming online? 
Q1 2020, uh, we, we had a few announcements that pertain to Alabama. Uh, most of those were in uh, southern Alabama uh, in our region two. Uh, international paper at Selma, uh, they announced the conversion of one of their machines to liner board. Uh, PCA up, uh, over in Jackson, uh, they were actually shutting down a paper machine. Uh, and then on the softwood sawmill side of things, uh, Rex Lumber uh, is ramping up a new sawmill, and uh, West Fraser and Opelika uh, is starting up a new planer mill. So uh, there's a little bit of activity uh, in Alabama that we uh, reported on in the first quarter of 2020. Why do you think it's important for a landowner to monitor uh, timber prices and monitor? What's going on in this market? Information is crucial. When you're a, a landowner, you're managing an asset that uh, has been growing for 20, 30, sometimes 50 years. So it's good to have the best information at your disposal so that you can make the best decision. Now, to say that, we are just unbiased information. Markets are local. Um, and so in order to make the best decision, uh, yes, you can use our information to kind of know uh, what has been going on in a market. But a lot of times when people are looking at our information, we're already a month, two months old at that point. So uh, the best thing to do is to, to get in touch with a local consultant or, or a local professional in, in, that, in your market and let them help you uh, know what's currently going on so that you can make the best decision for how to manage your asset. Well, Jonathan, today we talked about Alabama. Uh, next time we're going to be talking about Florida. But if folks want to keep track of their state and the timber market, current timber prices, all the news that you guys report on, how can they get a subscription to Timber Mart South? Where should they go? Uh, the best way to get in touch with us is to go to our website at uh, www.timbermarksouth.com and we would uh, look forward to getting in touch with you and trying to get you set up with a subscription that best meets your needs so you can get the information that will uh, help you manage your timber to meet your objectives. This week's current timber market update has been brought to you by Bay County Armory. Building an AR-10 or AR-15 can be a daunting task. Choosing every individual component of the firearm is something that prevents most of us from ever getting started and leaves you buying whatever rifle you can find on the shelf. Clint, you know, building an AR-15, I liken that to like trying to figure out how much your land is worth, really. I mean, you've got so many different variables, so many different components that lead to that eventual value. And it's the same thing with building an AR-15, man. You can personalize and customize every inch of that firearm based on what you're trying to do with it. For me, it's always been kind of a non-starter. And that's a good thing about working with Bay County Armory. They really guide you on choosing which components you want, you know, based on what you're trying to do. Are you trying to build a deer rifle uh, first and foremost that doubles as a personal defense rifle? Or are you trying to build a Defense rifle, first and foremost, that doubles as a predator rifle. Who knows what you what you really want? But if you reach out to Bay County Armory, you can give them a call at 850-832-2238, or you can check them on, out online at baycountyarmory.com. They'll work with you to find and create exactly what you want out of an AR-10 or AR-15. All right, let's get into this week's show. 
This week, we're talking with Andrew Martin. Andrew is the founder and president of Atlas Financial Strategies, and he is a financial advisor who has a passion for helping clients gain clarity on their financial plan and helping them find creative solutions to address their needs. And that's something that in land ownership and really in any kind of planning, we talk about it a lot on here, Clint, where everybody's situation is different can't sit there and say that all land is one value per acre. And just the same way we can't tell you what every uh, piece of dirt is worth uh, in Alabama or Florida or any other state, you can't create one financial plan or one estate plan for every landowner. There's, there's different things that have to be considered with everybody. And Andrew's an expert at that. He's been voted the best financial advisor six times in the last six years by the people in and around the Pensacola, Florida community. Andrew, welcome to Hunting Land, man. I'm excited to talk with you today about estate planning for landowners. Hopefully, it'll be a long time before I need an estate plan, <laughs> but I guess that's the only thing guaranteed in life. It's going to happen. That's right. Well, I appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, man. Why do you think estate planning is so important for landowners? Well, let me say this kind of as a, as a little disclaimer to begin with. Obviously, you know, like you said at the beginning, none of what I say should be taken as advice, right? Everything is, you know, in this kind of world is kind of an it depends, depends on state laws and what kind of land you own and so on and so forth. So I just want to make sure people don't, you know, take what I say as advice. It's important to, you know, hopefully this gets the juices flowing, gets you thinking, and, you know, you go meet with, you know, somebody that can help you with this kind of stuff. So I'll say estate planning is important for everyone, but owning a substantial amount of land adds some areas of complexity to the estate planning that people who don't own a lot of land uh, may not face. So it's just a different, uh, different considerations. You got to have different types of you know, different thought processes and different planning goes into estate planning for business or for landowners. Because again, it could be, um, you could be using it as a farm, you could be using it for timber, you could just be using it for personal use. Um, and all those things play into ultimately how that estate plan looks. Let's talk about those complexities a little bit. Give me some examples. I mean, what kind of challenges does land ownership cause? Um, when an estate is transferred? Yeah. So the big thing is, especially if people have heirs, multiple kids, multiple children, potentially, you know, sometimes if you own a large amount of land um, and you have multiple children, maybe one, you know, would like to have the land or if there's a business, say a farm or something on the land would like to be involved uh, with the farm and kind of take it over. Some children may not, they might not want anything to do with that. So treating them fairly, um, you know, some parents struggle with. And, you know, land is an illiquid asset for the most part. So if it's important for you to keep the land within the family for generations, potentially, it's important to have some estate liquidity as well. So, I mean, if that land was in a trust or something like that. And so I, um, I have a buddy who, who his grandfather, you know, left a bunch of land in a trust when he passed away. And didn't leave any any liquidity, any cash um, in the trust. So I mean, the heirs had to kind of fire sale, liquidate, you know, large large sections of the land just to be able to pay taxes and things like that. So um, you know, it's it's important to make sure that you're taking everything into consideration when you're when you're looking at passing land down to heirs. Clan, have you run into that in your land sales where you've had to actually sell land in that scenario? Yeah, uh, we've had situations where someone has inherited the property or a group of people have and it hasn't made it through probate yet. 
but they're looking for funds to either get them through that process. Uh, and we've had to sell land in advance of that and had it pay into the estate as well to just to get it to the finish line, you know, before just so they could have some form of distribution. So yeah, that's, that's something that everybody needs to be conscious of. And Clint talk about, you know, your experience with, uh, you know, clients that have had land and other things get caught up in probate. I mean, it is a long, expensive and arduous process. Yeah. Um, it, you're looking at six months minimum, you know, assuming there's no conflict at all. So, I mean, you know, best case scenario, you're having to deal with the headache and the cost of it for at least six months. Mm-hmm. Does an estate plan take into account that that probate period, Andrew? I mean, is that one thing that you need to be thinking about? Yeah. If, if done correctly, you can largely bypass probate. I mean, that's that's part of the whole thing is to make sure that, you know, you're not having land or anything caught up in probate to open it up to a family you know, arguments or, and it's expensive anyways. I mean, yeah. um, even if there are no arguments, it's still expensive, but I mean, if there are arguments, it delays how long that takes and just makes it all the more expensive. So, well, the, the good thing in my family is that, uh, there won't be any arguments because I'm, I'm the favorite child. So, you, <laughs> you know, uh, that, yeah. that's pretty, uh, pretty clear at this point. I've won that yeah. award. So there we don't go. really have to deal with that, but I can see where other people would maybe run into that that trouble. But yeah, I mean, so you you talk about probate, you talk about that transfer of ownership and, you know, taxes and things of that nature. I mean, when you sit down and you're coming up with an estate plan for a landowner, what objectives do you see are most common? You know, what are you trying to plan for? Anything that could possibly go wrong. And I'll, I'll say this for those listening. If you, we have, and I've shared this with Joe, we have a sample financial plan for farmers and ranchers um, that we can share with the public. So if anybody wants to get a copy of that, reach out to us and we can either email or mail it to you. And it just, you know, gives you an example of this family and their situation and the uh, estate planning considerations and things that they, um, that we kind of walk them through for that particular plan. But again, I, I think making sure that, so like we talked about earlier, Joe, most people reach out to me and they don't necessarily come to me with, with the thought of, hey, I have this land. I want to make sure that I can pass it to my ears. It's usually more all-encompassing than that. People are, you know, hey, we want to work with you just to make sure that we have everything taken care of the way that it needs to be and that there aren't any holes in our plan. And we just want you know, some professionals to look everything over and make sure that everything is the way that it should be. And so we even, you know, a lot of times will people will hire us to just kind of be a second set of eyes on some planning they've already done. So that farmer client that I was telling you, Joe, before before we got on the podcast, you know, he used a uh, law firm in a big city to do his estate planning. And he said, you know, we just want to pay you guys to kind of have a second set of eyes on it, kind of a second opinion. And we did. And there's some things that, you know, he, again, he worked with a law firm that they think about it the way that they think about it. We have on our financial planning team, we have various types of attorneys and CPAs and CFPs and so on. So to have, you know, kind of everyone's perspective, different types of professionals looking together, that one plan to create one congruent plan, I think is where the value comes in. But with their particular case, there's five children. They own a generational farm. I think he's the third generation. They've had this farm in the, in the in the family for a long time. And then there's, you know, two of the children who are involved in the farming. So just making sure that, 
They want to feel like they're treating each of the children fairly. Um, but then how do you do that when you have two children that are involved in the farming and are going to be working the land and three of them that don't want anything to do with it? You know, so that's that's a big sticking point. And how do we how do we do that successfully without anybody feeling like they're they got the short end of the stick? Yeah, I mean, it really seems like the objectives are to see around the corners because, I mean, you're guaranteed you're going to die. So that's sure. coming. Uh, we got to see around these corners and and try to foresee any plans and go ahead and deal with them before they occur in the same way that you would in an operating agreement uh, in a business. You know, we're, we're trying to sit down and say, if I get divorced, uh, what happens to my shares of the business? If I get uh, if I die, what happens to my shares of the business? If I want to exit, if I want to exit that business, um, I've had enough. What what happens? Uh, what is the, what's the plan? Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, and that's a big part of the planning as well. And for you know people who own land or just people who own businesses, you know all of the exit strategy, the buy sell, whether you have partner or you know maybe a child that you want to end up passing this down to at some point the buy sell planning is is very important and then the succession planning you know even if you were just to uh, retire and sail off into the sunset what does that look like you know what's what's the exit strategy everybody has an exit strategy whether they know it or not it just might not be much of one right and so you know we can die become disabled or retire and by retire i mean we can liquidate and walk away from. We can sell it to an outside party. We can sell it to family. We can sell it to, you know, the people working in the business, to employees. You know, there's just lots of considerations to have if you own a business or if you own a lot of land. Owning a lot of land. I mean, we're talking about dying and unfortunately that's all coming, but it's pretty expensive to die in this country. It can be if you own a lot of land. Share with me some some experiences you've had in in that regard and hopefully ways y'all have planned, uh, ways to minimize those expenses. So I'll, I'll give you two stories. Um, one, the guy didn't own a lot of land and one, you, you know, that, that farmer client that I was telling you about. Um, so the first one is, and I shared this story with you, Joe, um, this gentleman, he's a client of mine. He's, he's a successful business owner. And I share this with his permission, a successful business owner. And he knows he's going to be the uh, executor on his father's estate. And he knows his dad's got a lot going on, but he doesn't really know what and where, where it's at. And, you know, he's like, am I going to have to, am I going to have a mess dumped in my lap when he dies? His dad was in his eighties at the time. So he comes to me and he's like, I, I just don't know how to approach him about it. He's a staunch do it yourself or he hand files his own taxes. He's always managed his own investments and everything else. And he was like, he would never come see somebody like you. I was like, you know, I was like, well, how can we get him in here under the understanding that I'm not going to try to make him a client? And he said, well, it's worth a shot. So we got him in here and the guy again was very, he's like, I don't know why I'm here. I'm going to live to be 105. There's not an issue that needs to be figured out. I have everything taken care of. And apparently a couple of years before he did have, he did go, the only uh, professional he's ever paid was an estate planning attorney that he paid to do some estate planning for him. So they did the the typical will and living will and powers of attorney and they created a trust. So after we talked about, you know, kind of what all he had going on, he had a couple million dollars in individual stocks, about 50 individual stocks, and he had a couple million dollars in retirement plans and taxable retirement plans. He had a property in New York um, that was, you know, he just owned outright and he had some collectibles and things like that. And so he had 
um, a charity or some charities as part of the estate plan. And he had 13 grandkids that he wanted to give $8,000 a piece to upon his death. Uh, but the way that they had it set up, they had a trust that nothing was titled to. So he might as well have not had a trust. He was going to leave the retirement plan money, the taxable assets to his kids that would be taxed heavily and the tax-free assets, the stocks to the charities. So that didn't make any sense. And the property in New York would have been probatable. So it looked like a sticky situation, but the fix was fairly easy. But, you know, my client, after he saw it, he was like, I'll pay you, you know, to get this done. Dad doesn't have to pay you. I'll pay you. Let's get it done. So we titled the stocks to the trust and we were going to leave the the retirement plan, the taxable assets to the charities. They don't have to worry about paying taxes on it. Leave the tax-free assets to the heirs. Sold the New York property, got it, you know, so don't have to worry about that. Wrote an $8,000 check, you know, to all 13 grandkids and got them removed from the, you know, from the uh, estate planning documents. And so about a year and a half later, he passed away. This was actually over this last Christmas break. And so, you know, my client calls me over the break and kind of, you know, tells me what's going on. And on top of all the other things we talk about, you know, he says how grateful we are that we did that when we did. And so we did the calculation and it ended up saving them over $600,000 in taxes and probate costs and all that just by making sure that no, you know, all the loose ends were tied up. It wasn't anything... Uh, it was just, you know, he thought he had it done the way that it needed to be. And there was just some, you know, minor things that we could do to make sure that, you know, it didn't cost his family 600 plus thousand dollars. So it made an enormous difference. Um, but there's just little things like that. Just having some professionals take a look at everything, make sure that everything is done the way that it should be. Um, the other example, so the, uh, you know, the estate tax. Um, so as it sits right now, anything over 22 point some odd million uh, for a married couple, um, anything over that amount is exposed to an estate tax of 40%. So, you know, that, that farming client that I was telling you about, their farm is, uh, and everything that they own is worth about 35 million. So as it sits now, they have, you know, about a $13 million estate tax liability, you know, that's going to be taxed at 40% and their family has 90 days typically to pay that. But that estate tax exemption will revert back after this new tax law that Trump put in place sunsets after the year 2025. So after the year 2025, it reverts back to where it was pre the new tax law, which will be roughly half that amount. So, I mean, we're talking about potentially, you know, over $20 million dollars you know, $20, $24 million or so that's going to be taxed at a 40% rate if the estate plan isn't done the way that it should be. So, you know, yeah, for people who have just a whole lot of land or have a large estate, it's very important to make sure that um, the estate plan is done correctly so your heirs don't have to liquidate a bunch of land or a lot of assets just to pay the taxes. So are there some ways around the estate tax? I mean, I want to say tax, you know, it's not evading it, but are there some solutions to delay that? Yeah. So sometimes people uh, and people that own a lot of land, um, you know, can potentially take advantage of, you know, special valuations and things like that, you know, which would reduce the value of the land for those purposes. Um, they can also use trusts, which, and, and do a completed gift to go ahead and gift, you know, the maximum they can 
the 22 point some odd million to the trusts and kind of uh, remove it from the estate. There might also be, again, estate liquidity is a big issue. So, you know, a lot of times it makes sense to have some sort of what's called an irrevocable life insurance trust. Um, So if you want to leave liquidity to the estate, um, the irrevocable life insurance trust, the islet, uh, will typically, you know, you're able to leave a uh, substantial amount of life insurance to the trust that's not counted towards the estate. Um, so there's just, there's different things that you can do. Well, you bring up trust. So what are the roles of trust in estate planning? I mean, it seems like you hear about trust. It sounds like one of those things that I guess, you know, only rich people have trust, right? I mean, but now, nowadays I'm hearing about them more and more and more, especially, I mean, I know a lot of guys who own suppressors in trust. So I'm starting to hear that word uh, a lot. Now, what, what are the role of a trust? What is the role of a trust in estate planning? Yeah. And, and a lot of times it's asset protection. So uh, you're right. I think a lot of people, when they hear trust, they think that it's only for rich people. And, um, you know, that's, that's true in some ways, but I think even uh, normal everyday people should have trusts as well. I mean, depending on their situation, you know, like I'm not a rich person. I have a trust for my kids and for a lot of people, they don't want to leave a lot of land or money or whatever they have to their kids for fear of spoiling them uh, or for fear that they will be uh, irresponsible with those assets or that money. So the trust, if you leave it to the trust, the trust owns it and not them. So in my mind, there's kind of two different reasons that you would do that. Number one, if depending on how I set up the trust, I can dictate or you, or, you know, in my case, you know, leaving it to my kids, I can dictate when and how and under what circumstances they have access to the money, right? So at certain ages, they have access to a certain dollar amount or a certain percentage of the trust, or it's given to them outright or whatever it is. But, you know, I could say, well, they don't have any access to the money before age 25, unless it's to help with education expenses, all right? Or they have access to a certain amount of money for a 30% down payment on their first home or to put their kids through college or so much available if they want to start a business or so on, right? So you can completely dictate how that's done. So I think that for the people that who are worried about spoiling their kids or fear that their kids may be irresponsible with that money, that kind of alleviates that stress to know that, well, I can dictate when and how and under what what circumstances they have access access to the money. Um, also the asset protection side, right? If I leave it to the trust instead of the kids, even if my kids were grown at the time, right? They're 30, 40 years old, whatever it is. If I left it to my kids outright, well, now it's their money, right? So now it's exposed to risks like divorces or lawsuits or bankruptcies or whatever else, right? If I leave it to the trust, the trust owns it and not them, right? So it's not exposed typically to things like divorces or lawsuits or bankruptcies or things like that. If depending again, it depends if done correctly. Yeah. I think the, the asset control is a big issue long-term for a lot of large landowners. I mean, that really help dictate how things could go down. So you don't get into a fire sale situation or you have, you don't have some conflict that may have emerged late in life that rolls over into this and forces a your life's work to kind of <laughs> be dispersed quickly. I mean, we've dealt with situations yeah. where parents pass away and the kids get it. And, and there's one particular case in mind. We had a, a landowner that inherited probably 8,000 acres or so. And he and his dad, I guess, did not get along very well. His, his life's mission from that point on was to sell it as fast as he could and spend every dime. 
He didn't wow. have any kids. And he said, I'm going to have a blast and I'm going to die broke. And, you know, so all these decades that his dad spent, you know, assembling these tracks and accumulating all this acreage and, and quality timberland immediately changed direction upon his demise. And so yep. if that matters to you, if you want to protect that legacy, you know, it, it is wise to get into this. And then, and then once you do that, then all the tax shelter and asset protection is just additional dividend. Right. Yeah. And you know, not everybody cares. Like I was um, talking about before the podcast, we're working with some clients now that own a lot of land and they run a business on that land. And, um, you know, we had, <laughs> I, I thought that we were going to have three to five meetings about, you know, estate planning around the land and the business and so on. And we started getting into it. And they, you know, kind of cut me off and was like, oh, yeah, no, we don't we don't care about this. It's for us. We don't care what our kids do with it afterwards. They can fight over it. They can sell it. They can do whatever. So, I mean, if that's the case, well, then there is an estate plan for that, which is much more simple. But, you know, to your point, yeah, if you want to make sure that future generations, not just your kids, but your grandkids and great grandkids and so on, um, you know, can use this land, then it's it's important to make sure that it's set up accordingly. Andrew, do you always recommend trusts and estate planning? It varies and it depends. I will say I'm I'm a fan of them. I wish more people used them. And again, just for the sake of if you're planning to leave money to heirs, children or whatever else, again, I think even if you think they're going to be responsible with the money, just protecting those assets from, again, the risks of that child getting a divorce, which I think statistically is today over 50%, right? So that's a pretty big risk. And then lawsuits and bankruptcies and things like that. So, you know, by having um, a trust, you can protect those assets from from things like that. You know, and, and sometimes it can be real estate, it can be, you know, obviously businesses or things like that, that you have, you know, business entities that are owned by a trust, right? So even if your land is owned by a business entity, the business, the trust can own the business entity, you own the business entity, right? So it's it's kind of um, an extra layer of asset protection. So Andrew, as far as the roles inside a trust, I mean, we hear the words trustee and beneficiary and things like that thrown around. I mean, define those for us. And as far as trustees go, I mean, who do you usually see as who steps into those roles? Yeah. So uh, the beneficiary would presumably be your children or heirs or, or whoever, you know, who do you want to benefit from the money or land or whatever in the trust? Um, the trustee is who has a fiduciary, a legal obligation to make sure that they are using, um, that they are managing and handling the trust in accordance with your wishes, right? Which should all be spelled out in the trust documents. So sometimes people will choose friends or family members to be the trustee. You should always have at least one backup trustee um, just in case, you know, the first trustee is incapacitated or dies or whatever, right? You should always have at least a back one backup trustee. Some people will use companies to do that. There are companies set up who will act, you know, you're paying them a fee and sometimes it's either a flat fee or, or it's a percentage of the value of the trust, but they, it's a non-affiliated party that that's what they do for a living, right? That's their business and that's what they do. And they're following again, the rules of, that you set out in the trust. Now there's different ways to think about that. So, I mean, you know, some people say, well, I'd much rather have cousin so-and-so or my friend or my whoever 
you know, be the trustee. Well, you know, I, you know, we're, we recently changed how we did that. Cause I have, I had my best friend in the world as, uh, and his wife as the first trustees of, uh, of the trust. If my wife and I were to pass away and, you know, I mean, my kids call him uncle, I won't say his name, but call him uncle. And, you know, we're, we're very close. So point is, is that that could put him in a tough position to where, you know, if, if he's trying to figure out, well, here's my, my quote unquote niece and nephew that I want to do right by, but also Andrew, I want to do right by. And that it just sometimes could put him in a, in a tough position to where I, you know, he didn't necessarily ask to be put in that position. And now he's having to make tough decisions after I'm gone. Especially if he's not the guardian. Exactly. And he, it's just too close. And, you know, to some people, some people like that and they want, you know, a family member, somebody that they know, they know they can trust and so on. But then if it's somebody that's close to the family, you know, there's also the emotional element or, you know, whatever it is, the familial element. But, you know, so we switched it to, you know, a, a company that does that. Again, it's just that they don't know my family. There's no emotional attachment there. They're just going to simply follow what's in the trust documents. So does that appropriately answer, I guess, that that question? Yeah. Andrew, you mentioned business entities. And I mean, is there a scenario you've run into where a landowner uh, comes to you and they're doing their estate planning, their land or their business on that land is not currently, you know, in a business entity structure that is the most advantageous for them, where they're, where they're going to need to change their structure to take advantage uh, put themselves in the best position when the estate transfers? Yeah. Well, and this, we run into this a lot of times with um, just business owners in general, whether they own a lot of land or lot or, or not, you know, they might have, you know, their commercial piece of property that they're uh, running their business out of. So let's take a car dealership, for instance, right? They have the operational um, business, which is selling cars. And then they have the commercial land that they're running the business from. Uh, and the offices and such. So a, a lot of times it makes sense to have the property or, or land or office or building or whatever it is owned in a uh, business entity by itself and the operational business owned in a business entity by itself. Um, and then the operational business would lease or rent the office space or the land or whatever from the business entity that uh, owns that. So it's it's more of a a liability and asset protection play and also a tax play. Um, so if you, you know, if you put this in the context of landowners, so let's, let's say you own a farm. So you have the operational business, which is running, you know, the operations of the farm, you have the land, you have the equipment and you have potentially the, the inventory. So that could be grain, that could be animals, that could be, you know, whatever it is. So maybe, not always, again, this is not meant to be advice, but maybe it makes sense to have each of those, each four of those, so one being the operational business, one being the land, uh, the other being the equipment, and the other being the inventory, each owned by its own separate business entity. There's also what's called series LLCs, um, which um, you know allows there to be one business entity, but then sub LLCs under kind of the master entity. Again, I won't get too much into that, but you know, and that could be the, it might involve S corporations, LLCs, partnerships, limited partnerships, 
Um, C corporations, I mean, it could, you know, all that depends on the specifics, obviously, but it might make sense to do it that way. So in that case, you know, the operational business is um, leasing the equipment from the business entity that owns the equipment, leasing the land from the business entity that owns the land, and so on, right? So again, it's kind of a tax play and a uh, asset protection play. So, um, and again, it's very, it's state specific. It's, you know, and even if you have timber or something like that, if your plan is to, you know, sell timber, the timber on your land, you know, that could potentially be considered inventory. Um, and now that depends on if you're cutting the timber down yourself or if you're inviting somebody else uh, on your land to cut the timber and so on. But again, I won't get too terribly into it because again, it, it depends on so many things. But yeah, there there is a lot of cases where if you're using the land for some sort of business, that it makes sense potentially to own the land in a separate business entity than the operational business. And then you could, you know, again, if there's inventory or equipment or anything else, you know, that might, that might make sense to do something like that. Andrew, I want to take you back to something you said earlier in the show. You were talking about that family that used a, a law firm to create their state plan and that they kind of do things a little bit differently than y'all do. And you have attorneys, you know, on your team that advise. Tell me about that. I mean, what do y'all do differently at Atlas Financial Strategies? You know, and I run into a lot of people that that also, and no offense to any CPAs out there, but the, that use their CPA as their legal counsel, their tax counsel, their financial counsel. And a CPA is not a replacement in most cases for a financial planner or a or an attorney. We worked with a doctor that their CPA, you know, he was a sole practitioner. Their CPA said, you know, there's no reason to create a business entity, maybe not from a tax perspective, but from a liability perspective, there is. Anyways, it's just working with several different types of professionals, I think, may, I think makes more sense because people are going to have their own perspective. So, you know, again, we have tax planning and business planning and estate planning attorneys as part of the team. Um, we have CPAs, we have CFPs, we have other specialists and supporting staff. And so I think it's important to, um, from what I find from some of the plans that we've looked at where they've had, you know, a, a law firm put together their plan is that there's, in our opinion, some potential pitfalls or holes in the plan because they're only thinking about it one way. So that example that I gave you earlier with the guy that had the property in New York, that, that client that, you know, was a do-it-yourselfer, he had a trust, his estate planning attorney set up a trust, but nothing was titled to the trust, right? So the estate planning attorney didn't take the time to make sure that, um, yeah, all right, well, you have a trust, now let's make sure that you have things that you want titled to the trust, otherwise you might as well not have it. So, um, you know, we're a financial planning firm first. We charge for our financial plans. And that could be kind of a fee for service where people need our help just kind of with one thing, kind of a one-off thing, or, you know, people that have ongoing relationships with us. But I think it's important to understand the difference between, you know, fee-based uh, financial advisors or financial planners and most other uh, financial advisors. So I'd say probably nine out of 10 financial advisors, uh, their business model is based on assets under management, also called AUM. Um, and their whole MO is gathering assets, investable assets. So hopefully you have a lot of money laying around or a lot of money in retirement plans or something else. 
that they can manage for you and charge you, you know, 1% or so of assets under management. And that's, that's what they're there for. That's, that's what they want. Any other areas of planning for, in a lot of cases, are not necessarily interested in helping with because it's not um, what they get paid to do. They, you know, so I, I have a, a friend of mine and he's a, um, we're on the board of a nonprofit together and he works for a large wirehouse firm and he has his minimums two and a half million. So he's not going to work with you if you don't have two and a two and a half million dollars of investable assets. And he has a 24 month program where once a month he'll schedule a 30 minute phone call with you. And that 30 minute phone call will, you know, you'll talk about whatever other areas of planning, long-term care planning, life insurance, estate planning, whatever it is. So it's not really, I mean, as you can imagine, you can't get too far into planning in a 30 minute phone call. Um, but that's not really what it's about. It's a value add. It's to make that person stickier as a client to make sure that they keep their two and a half million dollars invested with them, right? It's a reason for him to talk to them once a month for the first two years of their client and add some extra value. And again, you know, um, make that client stickier. So I think it's very important to, you know, if you're going to use a financial planning firm for something like this to make sure that you are paying them for their time. I think that's pretty much the only way that you're going to get the type of planning and service that most people want when they do that type of planning. Um, Otherwise, again, most advisors are really more concerned about gathering assets and investing those assets. And we do that too. Uh, We're very capable of doing that, but that's, you know, we're a financial planning firm first. So what we care about, if you like to invest in real estate or land, or if you're a do it yourself or you like to manage your own uh, investments or whatever else, have at it. You know what I mean? We're totally happy with you doing that. We just want to make sure that there's no holes in the plan. There's no loose ends that need to be tied up. And, um, you know, having multiple types of professionals looking at the same plan and creating one congruent plan, taking into consideration the tax, legal, and financial implications of the plan, um, I think makes a big difference. So I just, regardless of who you use, I just would say make sure that they are um, well-equipped, that they they know what they're doing when it comes to that whatever area of planning that you need. Because again, a lot of financial advisors aren't necessarily equipped to do um, that type of in-depth planning, nor a lot of times are they interested in doing that. Um, because again, they, they really hope, and this sounds harsh, but they hope that you've invest your money with them and you kind of shut up and go away. You know, the owning land can take up a sizable chunk of your portfolio. Mm. Uh, doesn't, you know, benefit an assets under management uh, right. financial planner really in any way. So that that can be a, a struggle. I've dealt with that in my own personal situation uh, as a business owner and, uh, you know, and, and trying to incorporate land into my financial plan. Uh, it's just not really something that they want to talk about. So I've definitely, uh, yeah. definitely dealt with that. Uh, and that's the reason, one of the reasons, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show today was because you, you have that unique ability to uh, be able to listen to someone who either owns land and, and wants to create an estate plan uh, for, for when they pass away, but also other people who are wanting to create a financial plan to be able to continue to own land to, to purchase more land or maybe purchase their first piece of land and how that can fit into their overall retirement mm-hmm. plan. So, man, it's been good to uh, really kind of, I guess, scare some folks hopefully into getting <laughs> an estate plan because it's definitely uh, some pitfalls that can occur 
uh, if you're not ready. But if you if you go through the process, it's nothing to be really concerned about. It, it can, all all these challenges can be overcome. And so, if someone wants to reach out to you, have a take a look at at their unique situation. Uh, what's the best way for them to contact you? Yeah, they can just go to atlasfinancialstrategies.com. Um, they can, you know, take a look at our team. They can request a consultation if they'd like. Um, again, uh, it's not on the website, but if you reach out to us and you would like um, that sample financial plan for uh, landowners, I'd be happy to get that sent to you. If you want to schedule, a, I don't charge for consultations or any of that. So if you wanted to schedule a phone or video call to just talk more about your specific situation. I'm happy to do that. Um, but that would be atlasfinancialstrategies.com would be the best way for them to reach out to us. And um, again, I'm not, you know, we're not a great fit for everybody and not everybody's a great fit for us. So that's typically what that first meeting is about is to make sure that we're the firm for y'all and that y'all are the, you know, the right clients for us. And I, regardless of who you use, I just, again, would reiterate that, you know, hopefully they specialize in the type of planning that you're doing and they're capable of doing it. And um, you should expect whoever it is, again, to pay them for their time, because I I think that's the only way that you're going to get the type of in-depth planning that you're hoping for. Well, Andrew, thanks for all your knowledge today. Uh, This is a complex topic and hopefully we'll get you back on the show here soon to kind of dig in a little bit deeper into some of those complexities. But Man, I wish you luck in the rest of 2020 and uh, hopefully be talking to you again soon. All right, guys. Thank you. You as well. Clint, I don't know what that guy's talking about. When I was 22 years old, if you'd have given me, you know, several million dollars, I wouldn't have burnt that up. No, not at all. You had lots (laughs) of boats and shiny cars and it would all been, you know, invested wisely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) I was talking to my dad the other day, you know, and I said, uh, uh, we were talking about getting together for for Father's Day. And I said, so dad, you know, I'd like to come into town and and bring your grandson by and come see you. And you worried about this COVID-19 thing? Are you, you concerned about the health implications of it? And he said, no, everything's good. He said, I got my estate plan in place. He said, my plan is that I'm going to bounce the last check I ever write. (laughs) Sounds like a good time. (laughs) So I don't know if dad's taking this advice, but, uh, you got yourself a, uh, an estate plan in place and the unlikely and hopefully, you know, hopefully that event doesn't occur. But if you were to have an untimely departure, I do, uh, we've got to set it up where, you know, our kids can't touch anything till they're 30, you know, unless it's for educational purposes or something like that. So we're going to continue to build on that. But right now that's the, that's the base premises. I just don't want to put that dangle that carrot in front of their face. If, you know, if the time comes too soon, but you know, it, it really sounds, you know, listen to Andrew, there's a, there's a lot of, uses for this, you know, whether it be tax liability protection, asset protection, you know, emotional protection, just stopping, you know, heirs and family members from arguing and fighting, you know, to legacy protection to where you make sure that, you know, everything you've built before you go, you know, stays there for the benefit of the public or your family or, you know, whatever your goals were that they not only get achieved, but stay achieved over time. So I see a lot more opportunity out there than I did before today. Yeah. And it's not, I mean, it's not just about uh, your heirs necessarily in a lot of cases. I mean, it's a good thing to hold over their head to get them to act right. But I mean, maybe you don't have any heirs and you want to give it to a, a conservation fund. I mean, that happens quite a bit too. Yeah. I mean, in a, in a scenario like what he's talking about, these kind of things need to be in place to make that achievable as well. That's right. 
All right, folks. Well, if you hadn't got your estate plan in order, I would highly recommend you uh, start thinking about it, no matter your age. And uh, we're going to do some more content around uh, estate planning and then also tax planning for landowners. If you got any ideas or you got any questions in those two regards, definitely reach out to us. Uh, you can email us at pros at landhunting.com. And that's going to wrap it up this week. As always, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like us to email you this podcast, just head over to greatdaysoutdoors.com slash land and join our weekly email. This week's Hunt Land podcast has been brought to you by Wildlife Management Solution. The experts at Wildlife Management Solutions can guide you on selecting the best forage for your soils and goals. So give them a call at 877-400-8089 or check out their website with more information and a full dealer list at productsforwildlifemanagement.com. And also brought to you by Bay County Armory. Are you looking for a purpose-built AR-10 or AR-15? If you are, be sure to check out Bay County Armory. BCA builds firearms that suit your individual needs. Built for the task you're going to tackle, whether it's hunting, defense, or something else altogether. Bay County Armory, purpose-built AR-10s and AR-15s will guide you in designing the firearm of your dreams. Check them out at baycountyarmory.com or give them a call at 850-832-2238. And also, Alabama Act Credit, buying real property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. And also brought to us by Alabama Black Belt Adventures and their new coffee table book, Black Belt Bounty. Celebrates the traditions of hunting and fishing so deeply embedded in the folks who get to call the Alabama Black Belt home and the folks who enjoy. It's got unbelievable writing from award-winning writers, excellent photography, and some really awesome recipes from some of Alabama's nationally recognized celebrity chefs. If you want to pick up a copy, just go over to the Alabama Black Belt Adventures website at alabamablackbeltadventures.org slash blackbeltbounty.